I'm excited about this uh, series, and uh, I hope you are too, and not just what's happening here, but uh, we did some estimating that uh, we estimate there's about 650 people on the campus tonight, from the little ones up to the big ones, that's us, and all of them for one purpose, to study this. I believe what I hold in my hand is the only physical source of absolute truth on this earth. And I hope that that's where you come from, and uh, you'll see tonight why we believe that and what it tells us about the future. So uh, we're going to pray, and we're going to launch this series. Our Father God in heaven, we thank you for the breath of life that is in our lungs, for the hope that's in our hearts, even in the midst of a world that seems to have gone totally crazy. So we bless your name. We thank you for your mercy and grace that is sufficient for our sins. And you have promised us a future beyond our comprehension or imagination. So Father, I pray this prayer tonight that you would open our minds to understand the scripture. This is our goal, to understand the scripture, what you have written so that we might be able to be fully aware of that which is coming so that we prepare ourselves and prepare others for that day when we will meet you face to face. So may your Holy Spirit come in power and authority. We're going to give you all the praise and glory and honor for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen. When I announce um, that I'm going to teach roots on revelation or some kind of a biblical prophecy, we'll get our largest attendance. Why? Think about it. Why? Because everyone wants to know and understand the future. Everybody wants to understand uh, what we call in the Bible the revelation, what's coming. So let's begin our series with a question. And it's important that you are able to not understand it yourself only, but you can communicate it to those people in your world. Um, do you believe God wants us to know the future? Or do you think maybe he's got a plan he'd like to sneak up on us one day? <laughs> Tiptoe into our world. Or do you think he really has a plan that he wants us to know the future? Is that why Jesus told John to write the revelation down? Because if you read the revelation, Jesus tells John, write it down, John, write it down. And he actually dictates to him words, and John writes them down. Why? Because he wants us to live with a sense of hope and expectancy about the future. Is it possible to understand the revelation, or should we just stay out of the controversy? Now, a lot of churches will not teach revelation. A lot of churches, you know that about one-third of the Bible is prophecy is prophetic in nature. About one-third of the Bible is about what's coming. So should we just stay out of it? Because it seems to bring with it some controversy because, well, your interpretation's different than mine. Does the Scripture, and the answer to that question with this, does this Scripture from 2 Timothy apply to the Revelation and to us here in this room tonight? In 2 Timothy 3.16, it says, all Scripture, say it out loud, all Scripture 
is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. The scripture, it corrects us when we are wrong. It teaches us to do what is right. And God uses it, and I'm holding it. God uses this to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. The book of Revelation, we're going to spend a lot of time in the next uh, in 10 sessions total. The book of Revelation goes from good to bad to worse and then to wonderful. That's Revelation. Good, bad, worse, wonderful. Now, I don't know about you, but I need to know that it ends in wonderful. Because you might find yourself in a long period of time in the bad and the worse. We need to know about the wonderful. So what about this promise from the revelation itself? And I look at this huge audience tonight, and I know we've got people also watching online. And here's, I'm going to read Revelation 1 verse 3. God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. I've got some selfish motives. <laughs> Did you just hear what I read? God blesses the one who reads the words of this prophecy to the church. I'm going to read it to you over these next few weeks. And he blesses all who listen to its message and obey what it says for the time is near. Now, here's my request to everybody. I want you to hear this very specifically. I'm asking you, now we've got almost a full house tonight. I'm asking you to give me three sessions. Don't quit. I need you to give me three sessions. If you quit after three sessions, I'll only haunt you mildly. <laughs> but if you quit before three sessions, I will haunt you with passion, okay? And here's why. I, I need three sessions for you to really get what this is. You're going to have to get in. You need all 10. But tonight, I'm just, uh, it's deep. It's deep. And you, tonight, we'll lay the foundation. Next week, we'll, we'll take the first set of steps. By the third session, you're getting into the meat and potatoes, and you will understand it because God's going to reveal it to us. So I need you to, three sessions, three sessions. You get three, you'll stay for the 10, Okay. Jesus gives us a warning. He gives us a warning about being unprepared. And when I look at my life and the reason I'm even in the ministry and the reason I'm here at this church is um, I had an encounter with God years ago over a period of three years. Those of you who go to this church, you know what that is. I have told you repeatedly that I believe that God is calling watchmen all over the world. He's appointing them to give a, a clarion call, a warning to people to come in while there's time. Come inside. Come in the safety of Christ while there's time. Number two, the deliverer is coming. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour he's coming. And number three is why we're doing this session, this 10 weeks. Make the church ready for the wedding. She thinks she's ready. She's not. And that is passion that I have. One of my main jobs in the church is to prepare the church for the wedding. So the preparation, what you're going through in these 10 sessions, 
is preparation from the wedding. And I want you to see one of the places that that comes from. I'm going to read Luke 21. And if you know anything about Luke 21, it is Luke's version of Jesus' Olivet Discourse where he describes the end of time and his return. And you get down toward the end, and I'll get into detail later. Jesus says these words, watch out. If the Son of God looked at you and said, watch out, what would you do? I hope you'd watch out. In other words, pay attention. Don't let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Don't let that day, what day? That's what this session is going to be about. Don't let that day catch you unaware like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living upon the earth. I want you to draw something out of here. This he's referring to is a worldwide event. It is something that will touch all corners of the earth. Don't let that day catch you unaware like, like a trap. For that day will come upon everyone living upon the earth. Keep alert at all times. Pay attention. Watch out. And pray. Here it comes. That you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. The coming horrors in that statement, I believe with all of my heart, is a direct reference to the seven-year tribulation that he offers to take you before it comes. Pray that you would be strong enough to escape the coming horrors of God's judgment upon the earth and, number two, and stand before the Son of Man. Instead of standing in the judgment on the earth, stand in salvation in front of Christ himself. This particular 10-part series will focus on the seven-year tribulation, what Jesus in that text referred to as the coming horrors, horrors revealed in the revelation. However, we must reveal the before and after sections in order to understand the reason for the tribulation. If I were to go across the room tonight, and I'm not going to, but if I did, and ask each of you, Explain why God is going to set aside seven years of tribulation on the earth after the, the rapture of the church. Explain why. I bet I'd get a million answers. But in reality, he tells us what he's doing inside that seven years. There's an explicit purpose that he has set that time about for. And that's where we're going to cover tonight. The revelation doesn't begin with God's wrath. It begins with God's grace and mercy to the church. That's us. The revelation begins with the church age. And let me describe the church age. On the day of Pentecost, uh, Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection has taken place, and he's gone to the right hand of the Father. And the apostles are gathered in Jerusalem. Jesus says, I want you to go to Jerusalem, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit, until the Helper comes. They go to Jerusalem, the, the Holy Spirit comes upon them in power and authority, and the church is born. The supernatural movement of God is given birth on the earth. The Holy Spirit filled people on the earth. And they start on this mission. That's the beginning of the church age. The church age will end when he comes for his bride. After that, there will be a period of time called the tribulation. 
The revelation begins with the church age, and it describes the events that will conclude the church age and usher in what we call the Great Tribulation, what some describe as the time of Jacob's trouble. How many of y'all have ever heard of the tribulation as the time of Jacob's trouble? Several of you. And I want to show you where that comes from. If you grew up, and I did, in the King James Version Bible, you would read this. This Jeremiah 30 verse 7 is in the King James. Alas, for that day is great, so that none is like it. It is even the time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Jacob is Israel. There is a time set by God for Israel's trouble, but he will be saved out of the trouble. But in the trouble is the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. Now, so that I don't have to read King James any more in this context, I'm going to switch to the New Living Translation, and I'm going to expand that text, okay? I'm going to expand that text, nothing against King James. It's just that I, I'm going to... I'm going to talk English like we do today. This is the message. This is the, by the way, this is the same text that I just read. I'm just broadening it out. This is the message the Lord gave concerning Israel and Judah. There's your first hint. Israel and Judah. It is a future prophecy when the two shall become one again, when they will be reunited. A message the Lord gave concerning Israel, the northern kingdom, and Judah, the southern kingdom. This is what the Lord says, I hear cries of fear. There is terror and no peace. Now let me ask you a question. Do men give birth to babies? You know, for 6,000 years that was a rhetorical question. <laughs> And for the first time in human history, you tell me the return of Christ is not near? You, you get, that's rhetorical, except some people say, yeah. Do men give birth to babies? Then why do they stand here? Why do men stand here ashen-faced, hands pressed against their sides like a woman in labor? In all history, verse 7, in all history, there has never been such a time of terror. You, you know what he's talking about? He's talking about that's, that's coming. In all of human history, there's never been such a time of terror. It will be a time of trouble for my people Israel. That's where King James calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. Yet in the end, they will be saved. For in that day, says the Lord of heaven's armies, I will break the yoke of their necks and snap their chains. Who's he breaking the yoke from? Israel and Judah, the Jewish people. The bondage that they have lived in, spiritual bondage, he's going to take away from them in that day. But it's a time of great, what's the, what's the condition during that time? They're ashen-faced, they're scared to death, it looks like all the world's falling apart. But in the middle of that, that's why it's called the tribulation, in the middle of that he's going to come and do his work. For in that day, says the Lord of heaven's army, uh, armies, I will break the yoke from their necks and snap their chains. Foreigners will no longer be their masters. And when, when do you think that's going to happen? That won't, that'll be in the very end. For my people will serve the Lord their God, 
and their king descended from David. Won't you say his name? Jesus. They will serve the king descended from David. They will serve Jesus on this earth. On this earth. He's announced it. The king, I will raise up for them. For my people will serve the Lord their God and their king descended from David. Verse 10. So do not be afraid, Jacob, my servant. Do not be dismayed, Israel, says the Lord. For I will bring you home again from distant lands and your children will return from exile. Israel will return to a life of peace and quiet and no one will terrorize them. He's announcing this plan. And by the way, we're reading from Jeremiah. And Jeremiah is about 500 years before Christ. And he's announcing 500 years before Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the end of time when one from the seed of David will come and reign in Jerusalem, reunite an exiled people that will be regathered. By the way, that's happened in our generation, in our time. You are, you are witnesses, I am witness of that. And they, will never t and they won't be terrorized in their land. Hmm. Verse 11, for I am with you and will save you, says the Lord. I will completely destroy the nations where I have scattered you. Worldwide events. I will completely destroy. It, it's a time of Jacob's trouble. It's a time in which the world will be in total calamity. I will completely destroy the nations where I have scattered you, but I will not completely destroy you, Israel. I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you, Israel, go unpunished. Now, that's Jeremiah's prophecy 500 plus years before Christ. So let's jump forward to Matthew 24, Jesus' Olivet Discourse, where he describes 500 years after Jeremiah's prophecy, he describes this. For there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began. Is Jeremiah and Jesus talking about the same event? Yes. In this day, there will be greater anguish on the earth than at any time since the world began. And it will never be so great again. This, will be, this is it. The worst it could get on earth. Jesus says, in fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened... It's, already, it's planned to be seven years. Unless it was shortened, not a single person would survive it. But it will be shortened for whom? For the sake of God's chosen ones. Now, going through this, I want to make this clear who he's talking about. For the sake of God's chosen ones, he will shorten it because he's going to rescue out of the tribulation a remnant of Israel, a remnant of the Jewish people, and listen, tribulation saints. I'll get into that in a few moments. All of these are direct prophetic references to the seven-year tribulation that is described in detail in the Revelation. Jesus calls it the common horrors at the end of the Olivet Discourse. You will never understand the tribulation. You're never going to be able to jump into Revelation and read the tribulation until you understand the prophetic reasoning of the tribulation. 
the time of Jacob's trouble, Israel's trouble, Daniel's 70th week. It is centered around Israel. That statement, I will discipline you, but with justice. I cannot let you go unpunished. In the tribulation, he will be disciplining them. It's like turning up a fire to refine them so that he can scrape off the impurities and raise them to purity. He's going to do that in the tribulation. Jacob's trouble, listen carefully, comes after the time of the Gentiles. After the time of the Gentiles is completed upon the earth, after the church age, the prophet Daniel also described this future time. I refer to it in these sessions, the 70th week of Daniel. If you want to read about that, you can go in your own to Daniel 9, 24, read the context. I'm going to read from Daniel 12. At that time, Michael the archangel who stands guard over your nation. Now, now, who's the nation? Who is Michael the archangel of? Israel, okay? At that time, Michael the archangel who stands guard over Israel will arise. Then there will be a time of anguish greater than any since nations first came into existence. Do you see it? Jeremiah, Jesus, now Daniel, all are talking about the same event. A time so horrible, it's never been before and it'll never be again. But at that time, every one of your people, the Jewish people, whose names is written in the book, will be rescued. He's going to deliver them out of this horrible period. They will be rescued if their names are written in the book. We'll call them the remnant. Many of those whose bodies lie dead and buried will rise up. Some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting disgrace. Those who are wise will shine as bright as the sky. And those who lead many to righteousness will shine like the stars forever. But you, Daniel, keep this prophecy a secret. Huh? Keep this prophecy a secret. Seal up the book. Now, what's the, what's the time of Daniel? Daniel is about 586 B.C., 586 years before Christ. Uh, Daniel's in the time, uh, he's the first group that was taken captive by King Nebuchadnezzar to Babylon. He's there with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So he's, he's getting this message, Daniel, I want you to seal up the book until the time of the end. When many will rush here and there and knowledge will increase. Now, the reality is we're 2,500 years on the other side of Daniel. And let me ask you, is this the time of the end? Seal it up until the time of the end. In other words, it's not like you're never going to understand it, but you're not going to understand it until the time of the end. And what will be the condition in the time of the end? Many are going to rush here and there. Travel will be increasing on the earth. And he says, and knowledge will increase. Has there ever been more information available to more people on the earth than now? Never. Never. The Apostle Paul. So we've got Jeremiah, we got Jesus, now we got Daniel. All of them talking about a future event in which will be so horrible, but even in the midst of the horror, God will bring a refiner's fire and raise up 
a remnant out of Israel in the tribulation. The Apostle Paul reveals the transition between the church age, the time of the Gentiles, and the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation. The events will precede Daniel's 70th week. Now, I know this is when it's going to get confusing. What I'm about to read is how does it go from the church age to the time of Jacob's trouble? How does it go from the time of the Gentiles to the time of the Jews? How does, how does, what, what separates that seven-year tribulation from that what has right now been a 2,000-year of God opening up salvation to the Gentile world through the gospel of Christ? What, what's the gap? The events will precede Daniel's 70th week. And when you hear me say the 70th week, what I'm saying, it is a week of years. It is seven years. We'll go into that later. So let's read Romans eleven twenty-five. the Apostle Paul explaining, how do you get from the time of the Gentiles to the time of the tribulation? How do you get, to, how do you get from one to the other? I want you to understand this mystery. Now, I just read to you that Daniel was told to close it. And here's Paul, and he's going to open it. He says, I want you to understand this mystery. Brothers and sisters. So who's he writing to? The church. Specifically, who and what church? The church in Rome. Who are they? They're Gentiles. I'm not going to say there's not Jewish people in the church in Rome, because they're where? But the Roman church was the Gentile church. He's writing to Gentiles, what? In order to reveal a mystery to them, brothers and sisters. I, I want you to reveal this mystery so that you Gentiles in the church age, that's who he's talking to, will not feel proud about yourselves. You know, look at us, you know, especially looking at Israel which much of Israel right now has returned. Many of the Jews have come back to the land, but the strange thing is they've come back in unbelief. They didn't come back thinking Jesus is Messiah. They're not even coming back obedient to the law of Moses. I don't even think many of them know why they're coming back, just so they can practice their lifestyle without persecution perhaps. But he's saying specifically, to the church at Rome, to the Gentile church, do not feel proud about yourselves regarding your condition with Christ in the church age compared to Israel's condition during the church age. Don't feel proud about yourselves. Here's why. Some of the people of Israel have hard hearts, but this will last only until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. You see the connection? What's going to get from the church age to the time of Jacob's trouble? Many of Israel have hard hearts. If you read the rest of the scripture, you'll find out there's a veil over their eyes. They cannot see Jesus as Messiah. Many of them can't see. But one day that veil will be removed. I can tell you, you want to get to the, one of the big points in the future weeks, the tribulation is the time in which he will remove the veil. And they will see. In fact, that'll kind of be at the end tonight. This will last until the full number of Gentiles comes to Christ. Now, we have often 
kind of with humor, but it's not really humor, said if, so I want you to imagine that if from God's perspective, somewhere in the world, there's the last Gentile that's coming in. If he happens to be in the room tonight, would you come on? <laughs> but can you imagine that from God's perspective, when he told the apostle Paul this, that this, this condition of Israel being not able to see Messiah, their, their Messiah, their Jewish Messiah, Jesus, Yeshua, that it will stay that way until the final Gentile comes to Christ. So when will that happen? Verse 26, what happens after the last Gentile comes in? The final Gentile, verse 6, 26. And so all Israel will be saved. So you see, it's like this church age, he's looking to the Gentiles, preach the gospel to all the world, make disciples in all nations. And then he turns, when the last Gentile comes, he turns to the Jewish people. But the difference is, instead of 2,000 years, which it's been so far, it's seven years. The time gap is predetermined. And so all Israel will be saved, as the scriptures say, the one who rescues will come from Jerusalem. Who is he? Well, Daniel prophesied it. Jeremiah prophesied it. He will come from Jerusalem and he will turn Israel away from ungodliness. His name is Jesus. He will come from Jerusalem. And, and this is my covenant with them. I will take away their sins. Church, do we understand how anyone can have their sins removed? Will it be because they made an altar sacrifice to an obedience to the law of Moses? No. Animal sacrifices? No. No. It'll be Jesus. And I will take away their sins. The atoning blood of Christ will cover their sins. So let's make something really clear, because this is a question that's come up over the years. In the past 2,000 years, since the birth of the church on the day of Pentecost, the time of the Gentiles, let's call it what it is, the time of the Gentiles, Many Jewish people have come to Christ during the church age, right? So let's don't get confused here. Peter, Andrew, James, and John are Jewish people. The apostle Paul is Jewish. So you can read this and kind of get messed up in your mind that it's only the, for the Gentiles during the church age. You'd be wrong. The emphasis is for the Gentiles. But many Jewish people, I have a friend, uh, in, in Tel Aviv, who is a Messianic Jew. Uh, some of y'all read Jonathan Kahn's books, a wonderful Christian Jewish man who is a Messianic Jew. He, you know, the, many Jews have come to Christ during the church age in which God was pouring out his spirit upon the Gentiles. But the focus of God during the tribulation will be the Jewish people returning to God. It will be them. Now, now that brings up one more thing. Somebody asked me the question. I've had this a lot. Are, will Gentiles be able to come to Christ during the tribulation? Is it possible? It, it, I believe, yes, it will be possible. But I think it will not be easy. It will be very difficult. And future sessions, I'll be able to get into that in detail and not just say that, I'll be able to show you why. In, in fact, um, he talks about 
in 2 Thessalonians, a spirit of delusion that will come upon the earth. And I think we'll touch on it a little later. A spirit of delusion. Which you would think, right? You would think that if on a certain day, everyone who was a, a believer in Christ suddenly was gone, and you've been playing the game, but you weren't really in the game, you've just been pretending to be a follower of Christ. On the day after you saw all your buddies gone, that you would fall on your face and confess Christ, right? You would think, well, that'd be easy. I doubt it. Jesus proclaims multiple times, no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him. There's a work of the Holy Spirit. And in that moment when the church left, so did the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to explain that in a moment. Because the Holy Spirit's mission just changed. And he's, he's got a new interest now. And he's focusing. So, so the reason I make a big deal out of that, maybe in the first session, if you're in the room tonight and you were thinking, well, I'm just going to wait till all of y'all poof, and then I'm coming in, you are the dumbest person I've ever met, <laughs> if that's your idea. Most of you know Zechariah chapter 14. If you come to church here, it is one of the clearest descriptions of the physical return of Jesus to this earth in all of the Bible. In fact, let me just kind of tell you, in Zechariah chapter 14, it, they, are, they are in a, a time of war. Jerusalem has been invaded. Your houses have been ransacked and your women are being raped. That's Zechariah 14. And in that moment, what's it say? And his feet stand on the Mount of Olives east of Jerusalem, and he comes to make war. He is Jesus. In the tribulation, in the time of Jacob's trouble, when everything is lost, they are at their end. This looks like there's not going to be any of us left. None of, nobody's going to survive. The whole world has invaded. Under the power of the Antichrist, our destruction is at hand. And Jesus comes and stands on the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem. Now, if that's Zechariah 14, if that's Zechariah 14, I want to read two chapters before that. Two chapters. Zechariah 12, verse 1. Stay with me. This is important. This message concerning the fate of Israel came from the Lord. This message is from the Lord who stretched out the heavens, laid the foundations of the earth, and formed the human spirit. I will make Jerusalem like an intoxicating drink that makes the nearby nation stagger when they send their armies to besiege Jerusalem and Judah. On that day, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock. All the nations will gather against it to try to move it, but when they try to move Jerusalem, they will only hurt themselves. On that day, says the Lord, I will cause every horse to panic, every rider to lose his nerve. I will watch over the people of Judah, and I will blind all the horses of their enemies. And the clans of Judah will say to themselves, the people of Jerusalem have found strength in the Lord of heaven's armies, their, their God. On that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a flame that sets a wood pile ablaze and a burning torch that... Among sheaves of grain, they will burn up all the neighboring nations right and left, while the people living in Jerusalem will remain secure. The Lord will give victory to the rest of Judah first. 
before Jerusalem so that the people of Jerusalem and the royal line of David, listen, and the royal line of David will not have greater honor than the rest of Judah. On that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. Is anybody hearing this? On that day, the Lord will defend the people of Jerusalem. The weakest among them will be as mighty as King David. The royal descendants will be like God, like the angel of the Lord who goes before them. For on that day, I will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. This is the tribulation. There's world war. On that day, I will begin to destroy. Who's I? God will begin to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then I will pour out my spirit of grace and power on the family of David and on the people of Jerusalem. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Who is he? Who are they looking at? Jesus. They will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as for an only son, and they will grieve bitterly for him as the firstborn son who has died. Why are they grieving and mourning when they look upon the one who is pierced? Because the veil will be removed, and for the first time they will see that Yeshua Messiah was always their Savior. He was always the one they were waiting for. They just didn't see it. Verse 11, the sorrow and mourning in Jerusalem on that day will be like the great mourning of Hadid Ramon in the valley of Megiddo. All Israel will mourn, each clan by itself and with the husband separate from their wives. And the clan of David will mourn alone as with the clan of Nathan, the clan of Levi, and the clan of Shemai. Each of the surviving clans from Judah will mourn separately and with the husband separate from the wives. It's always been him. So can you, can you see the gospel of John? He came to his own and his own rejected him. But to as many who have received him, they gave the right to be called the children of God. Children not born of a husband's decision or a father's will, but children born of God. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He came to the Jewish people and yet they rejected him. And that's why they're weeping and wailing and mourning because now, after all this time, after all these generations, the veil is removed and they see that it was him all along. It's at this point that we need to look at the prophetic announcement of the angel Gabriel to Mary before the conception. Why? Why do I need to go back to that? I find it amazing that so many people read the Christmas story and miss one of the largest announcements inside of it. The tribulation period precedes the 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth in Jerusalem. Let me say it again. When Jesus comes to make war in Jerusalem, at the end of that event, he will take his seat on David's throne in Jerusalem on this earth, on this earth. And he will reign, the Bible says, for 1,000 years on this earth. Before there is a new heaven and a new earth, he will reign on this earth for 1,000 years. Now, when the angel Gabriel comes to Mary, what does he tell her? What does he tell her? There's prophetic announcements. Verse, 9, verse 29, Luke chapter 1. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. 
Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You, you can check that off, right? That, that's happened. Right? And you will name him Jesus. And you can check that one off because that one's happened. Right? He will be very great and called the son of the most high God. You can check that one off because that one's happened. But you better hold on for the next one. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. Coming soon. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor, David. You've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Did Jesus sit on David's throne? No. Is David's throne in heaven? No. Where is David's throne? Jerusalem. It's interesting that the church that believes, we believe what? You will give birth to a son and name him Jesus. We believe that. He'll be very great and called the son of the most high. We believe that. But what about this? The Lord God will one day give him the throne of his ancestor David. And here comes the next one. And he will reign over Israel. That's the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom, once it begins, will have no ending. Something's coming. Something big is coming. This comes out of the tribulation. Out of the tribulation, a kingdom will rise. Out of the tribulation, a kingdom will rise. This is why the revelation begins with the church age, the time of the Gentiles, Jesus dictating a letter to seven different churches, and then the church is not mentioned again until the end of Revelation. Has anybody noticed that if you've been here, we've made a big deal out of that. The, the, the whole beginning of Revelation is the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church, the church. There's seven churches. They've all got this message. Write it down, John. Write it down, John. And then you get to chapter 4, and if you read the verse before chapter 4 begins, it's this. It's the letter to the church at Laodicea, and he has just explained uh, Jesus' message to Laodicean church. I wish you were uh, you're warm or hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say you are rich and in need of nothing, but you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. And then it says this. He who has ears to hear, let him hear and understand what the Spirit says to the church. Now, that's the seventh message to the seventh church. And the entire revelation is the church, the church, the church, the church. And you turn the next verse, and here's what it says. Verse 1, chapter 4. And then as I looked, and I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. And the voice said, come up here. Come up. After this, after the seven churches, the angel says to John, come up here, and I will show you what must happen after this. After what? After the churches are finished, the time of the Gentiles, come up here, I will show you what happens after this. And what happens after this? And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven. Someone sitting on it. The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like Jasper and Cornelian. And the glow of the emerald circle, of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. 
24 thrones surrounded him, 24 elders sat on them. They were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightnings and rumbles of thunder. And in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. In the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes front and back. After this. After this, after the church age is closed, listen carefully. After the church age is closed, after the time of the Gentiles, after the rapture of the church, the time of Jacob's trouble will begin. It's called the tribulation, the 70th week of Daniel's end time prophecy. You might be surprised when I say this time is both wonderful and horrible. There will be perhaps the greatest revival that has ever happened on the earth during the tribulation. But that revival will be focused on Israel, not the Gentiles. Horrible because those who come to Christ during the tribulation will face persecution and certain death. While the Antichrist rules on the earth in the absence of the church. And this is where we're going next. How does the Antichrist have so much power? He rules on the earth in the absence of the church. Yes, the tribulation is the time of God's wrath. But we must also understand that the tribulation begins when the Holy Spirit-filled church departs from the earth and the Antichrist signs a peace agreement with Israel. So some people believe that uh, when does the tribulation actually begin? When is the seven-year countdown? Does it necessarily begin in the rapture of the church? No, the Bible doesn't really say that. The Bible says that what the countdown will begin when there is an agreement signed between the Antichrist and Israel. Some form of a peace agreement will take place. Jesus... The Holy Spirit is the restrainer of evil on the earth today. Right now, as dark as it looks in this world, understand there is one person holding back the darkness, one light holding back absolute darkness. His name is Jesus. The Holy Spirit lives inside of Christians today. So how will there be a revival in Israel among the Jewish people after the church leaves? It's a good question, right? So if, if no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him, if it is a work of the Holy Spirit for any of us to have eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart that can believe, receive, and obey, if that's the work of the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit leaves when we leave, how will any of the Jews during the tribulation ever come to Christ? Well, you're about to find out. The Holy Spirit lives inside of us today. If you study the scripture, it looks like the Spirit of God will come upon people and it will looks different. Now, it, it, quite frankly, I find it a mystery in itself. But right now, if you are a Christian, the Holy Spirit is, has an indwelling spirit inside of you, which means the spirit is not external to you. The spirit is internal to you. He comes and lives inside of you, inside of you. Okay, he, he's not in a Jerusalem temple behind a veil. He's in this temple that's got legs, right? He's in me, he's in you. 
So in the time of the tribulation, the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit coming upon people. And it's not so strange. If you go back to the Old Testament, there's examples of similar language when the Holy Spirit, uh, not the indwelling Spirit of Christ, but the Spirit nonetheless. Uh, I told you, it's kind of hard to explain. Let me give you an example. 1 Samuel 16, verse 13, King David. So as David stood there among his brothers, this is when Samuel comes to anoint him. He stood there among his brothers. Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with the oil. And the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David. From that day on, then Samuel returned. So was that the indwelling Spirit of Jesus Christ inside of David? No. It's different in the church age. It's different. But the Spirit, it's the same Spirit, but how it comes is different. Here's another example. The prophet Ezekiel. It says, stand up, son of man, said the voice. I want to speak to you. And the Spirit came into me, and it spoke. So it's like the Spirit can come, and then it would go. And then it would come in power, and then it would go. And that's different than us today. It's, it's different. Jesus isn't with you when you come to church on Sunday, and you go get in your car, and he leaves. I'll see you next week. That's not how it works, right? Praise God, hallelujah, that's not how it works. The Spirit came into me and he spoke and he set me on my feet and I listened carefully to his words. Son of man, he said, I am sending you to the nation of Israel, a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their ancestors have been rebelling against me to this very day. They are stubborn, hard-hearted people, but I'm sending you, Ezekiel, to them. This is what the sovereign Lord says, and whether they listen or refuse to listen, for remember they are, level, they are rebels but at least they will know that they have had a prophet among them. And what made him a prophet? And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he could see things that nobody else could see, and he could hear things nobody else could hear, and the Spirit of the Lord would come upon him. The church age experiences the indwelling Spirit of Christ. Christ in me is the mark of the Spirit, God's mark of ownership over me. The, Christ, the Holy Spirit in me is the mark of my salvation. It is a guarantee. The Spirit's presence in me is the guarantee that God will keep His promise to me in the future. Let me put it this way. It is His abiding presence. The Holy Spirit is the presence of God. Remember when Moses is gone up on the mountain and God has told Moses, this is one of my favorite scenes in all the Bible. God told Moses that you're going to go on to the promised land, but I'm not going to go with you because you're such rebels. If I go with you, I'll destroy you along the way. And Moses looks at God and says, if you ain't going, I ain't, if you ain't going with us, I ain't going. He thought, whoa. If you don't go with us, I ain't going. And you know what he said next? This is one of the most powerful things. He, he's revealing the essence of the church. He says, because if you don't go with us, how will any of the people on the earth know that you look favorably upon me or us? For it is only your presence that separates us from the rest of the world. So if you ain't going, I ain't going. You think God just struck him down? No, God was like, I was hoping you'd say that. Because that was God's desire for Moses. That's God's desire for the church. We're not going anywhere unless you go with us.
That's the whole power of this indwelling spirit. The tribulation period looks different, okay? Different. The spirit comes upon people and, listen, you want this, it's going to get interesting, and they will be marked. Revelation. Finally, we're over in Revelation chapter 7. Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds so they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. Are you ready? The angel's carrying a seal of the living God. What's the seal? This is his ownership. He, he, you belong to him. When he seals you, just like when I'm sealed with the Holy Spirit, I belong to him. He who is in me is greater than this evil spirit in the world, right? I, I'm sealed. He's carrying a seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm the land or the sea. This is the tribulation. Wait. Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the forehead of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. Are you ready? 144,000 were sealed from all the 12 tribes of Israel. 12,000 times 12 tribes is 144,000. The Jewish people will be supernaturally Holy Spirit filled. And let me tell you what that, the best description I ever heard of that, one guy, the Apostle Paul, had the Holy Spirit and he changed the whole planet. And the proof of that is us in this room. Right? One guy. What do you think is going to happen when 144,000 Apostle Pauls are set loose at the same time on the earth? They will turn the world upside down. Now, the problem is that the Antichrist will be reigning at the same time. Supernatural evangelists. So earlier I asked the question. The question is, if no one can come to the Son unless the Father draws him during the church age, how will the Jewish people turn to Christ during the tribulation? There's one of them. 144,000 supernaturally sealed evangelists who belong to God. What do you think they're going to do? They're going to go spread the gospel of Jesus Christ to planet earth. And you know what? They won't die. If you read the end of Revelation, they're all still there. None of them die. The people they convert do. The ones who come to Christ in the tribulation, they do. But not the 144,000. Why? They're sealed by God. When the light of the world departs, that's the church, the Holy Spirit-filled church. Sin and darkness will take over the earth as the Antichrist assumes world power and control. Now, I got to tell you that <laughs> you would think I've planned this, but I did not. You know what the sermon topic for this Sunday is as I'm preaching through the First John? The title for this Sunday sermon is The Antichrist is Coming. Now, you would think that I months back worked all of this out so that this coincided, then you would give me way too much credit. Because <laughs> I did not plan that, but I just smile because I feel like the Holy Spirit's working something out. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. And when the Holy Spirit leaves, the Antichrist will assume control and power of the earth. It's seven years. It's worldwide power, worldwide control. 
And it is a war like has never taken place on this earth before. So whatever you thought the horror of World War II was or any of the previous things, nothing compared to what's coming. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 1. Now, dear brothers and sisters, let us clarify some things about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and how we will be gathered to meet him. So two things. Let's clarify. Jesus is coming and how we're going to get from here to him. That's what he's about to do. So I'd pay attention. Don't be so easily shaken or alarmed by those who say that the day of the Lord has already begun. Don't believe them even if they claim to have had a spiritual vision, a revelation, or a letter supposedly from us. Don't be fooled by what they say. What what are we talking about? Two things. The coming of the Lord and how we're going to get from here to Him. Two things. That's what we're talking about. That day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God. The New American Standard calls it an apostasy. That day cannot happen until the great apostasy, the falling away, occurs. Now, I got to tell you, the falling away is the church. Unbelievers don't fall away. The church falls away. That day will not come until there's a great rebellion against God and the man of lawlessness is revealed. The one who brings destruction. By the way, what are they falling away from? This. This. They're falling away from this. Is that happening in our generation? Yes, it is. Now notice something. That day will not come until this rebellion against God and his word And the man of lawlessness is revealed. The man of lawlessness is the Antichrist. He is the same person. He will be, and then he will be revealed. After the rebellion, the apostasy, the man of lawlessness will be revealed. The one who brings what? What was the word? Destruction. There's the tribulation. Okay? There's an order. Listen carefully. He, the Antichrist, the um, man of lawlessness, will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. Now, he can't sit in the temple if there is no temple, right? Which tells you that somewhere in here there's going to have to be a temple in Jerusalem for him to go to. And by the way, I believe that when the Antichrist signs an agreement, more than likely that agreement will somehow enable the Jewish people to rebuild the temple in which he will one day then stand in and proclaim that he is God. Verse 5, don't you remember I told you about all this when I was with you? Did you read, anybody read 1 Thessalonians? Because they're reading 2 Thessalonians. We're reading the second letter. And he says, I told you about all this when I was with you. What's 1 Thessalonians? What's 1 Thessalonians say? And there's going to be a loud shout. And there's going to be a voice of the archangel. And there's going to be a trumpet blast. And the dead in Christ are going to rise. And those of us who are remaining alive at that time are going to rise to meet the Lord in the air. And there we shall be with him forevermore. Therefore, encourage each other with those words. Are you encouraged? Because he says, I talked about this in my first letter. I've already covered this with you, right? And now some people are saying it's already happened. We've missed it. Verse 6. This is when it gets good. You know what's holding him back? For he can be revealed only when his time comes. Can he just come whenever he wants to? Take over? No. 
because you're here. And that doesn't make us very powerful, but the one inside of us has all power, dominion, and authority. You know what's holding him back. He can be revealed only when his time comes, for this lawlessness is already at work secretly. That's what 1 John calls it, the spirit of Antichrist. And it will remain a secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. Who's going to step out of the way? The church. Then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will kill him. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. He will have a short reign. But then the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor of his coming. What kind of weapon does it take to destroy the Antichrist? The Word of God. You see how powerful this is? The Word of God. Verse 9. This man will come to do the work of Satan with counterfeit power, signs, and miracles. He will use every kind of evil deception to fool those on their way to destruction because they refuse to love and accept the truth. And I'm going to hold it up. Because they refuse to love and accept the truth that would have saved them. So God will cause them to be greatly deceived. This is one of the scriptures that I referred to earlier that that leads me to believe that if you were in the church, playing church when the church left, and you think that just naturally you'll find your way to Christ without the Holy Spirit's presence after the rapture, listen, verse 11, so God will cause them to be greatly deceived. And they will believe lies. And then they will be condemned for enjoying evil rather than believing the truth. Today is the day of salvation. Today. Today. Can you see why Jesus put these words at the end of the Olivet Discourse? And when I say Olivet Discourse, it's Matthew 24 and Luke 21. The Olivet Discourse is Jesus' detailed description of the events that will lead up to his return. So let's go to Luke 21. And try to put all this together, okay? They will be killed by the sword and sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. What's he talking about? It's an event that would happen in 70 AD after the crucifixion of Christ. People will be killed by the sword, sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. The Jewish people today call it the great diaspora, the great scattering. In 70 AD, when Titus, the emperor, the Roman uh, commander, comes, he destroys Jerusalem. Many of them die. The rest of them are scattered across the earth. They will be killed by the sword, sent away as captives to, to all the nations of the world. And Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Now listen, in 70 AD, the Jews were scattered. They no longer had any control or authority or governmental responsibility for Jerusalem. In my lifetime, that changed. In 1967, Israel regained control and sovereignty over Jerusalem. So I want to read this again. Listen. They will be killed by the sword and sent away as captives to all the nations of the world. You can kind of say that was what happened in 70 AD. Jerusalem will be trampled down by Gentiles from 70 AD to 1967 until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. So here we are in my generation. Israel is back in Jerusalem. Now listen, for some reason, again, it's one of those mysteries. God's prophetic time clock needs Israel in Jerusalem to count. When they're out of Jerusalem, it's like the clock stands still. 
When they come back into Jerusalem, the clock starts counting. And there will be strange signs. So let's do something. Let's stop counting at 70 AD. And, and the church age now has taken place. So let's just say roughly 2,000 years. The time of the Gentiles have trampled Jerusalem. They've ruled Jerusalem. And at some point, 1967, Israel takes back Jerusalem. At some point, he begins counting. So let's come back in now to the story. Now Israel has Jerusalem again. Then what would be next? 25. There will be strange signs in the sun, moon, stars. Here on the earth, the nations will be in turmoil, perplexed by the roaring seas and strange tides. People will be terrified at what they see coming upon the earth, for the powers in the heavens will be shaken. Then everyone will see the Son of Man coming on a cloud with power and great glory. So when you see all these things begin to happen, stand up, look up, stand and look up for your salvation is near. Then he gave them this illustration. Notice the fig tree and, or any other tree. When the leaves come out, you know that you know without being told that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things take place, you can know that the kingdom of God is near. And I tell you the truth, and here comes one of these prophetic mysteries. I tell you the truth, this generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. What does he mean? This generation will not pass from the scene until all these things have taken place. So, so can I propose an idea? Is Israel back in Jerusalem, Israel back in the land, the fig tree? That the generation that sees Israel back in the land, back in Jerusalem, this generation will not pass away until all these things have taken place. Heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. And I want you to be amazed by the context of the next verse. Watch out. Do not let your hearts be dulled by carousing and drunkenness and by the worries of this life. Do not let that day catch you unaware like a trap, for that day will come upon everyone living on the earth. Keep alert at all times and pray that you might be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. I don't know about you, but I don't plan on being here when the Antichrist takes over world government. I don't plan on being here when all hell breaks loose on the earth. This 10-week root session will talk about the tribulation that I plan to miss. Pray that you would be strong enough to escape these coming horrors and stand before the Son of Man. So I want to repeat 2 Thessalonians 2, 5 through 8. Don't you remember that I told you about all this when I was with you? And you know what's holding him back, for he can be revealed only when his time comes. For this lawlessness is already at work secretly, and it will remain secret until the one who is holding it back steps out of the way. And then the man of lawlessness will be revealed, but the Lord Jesus will kill him with the breath of his mouth and destroy him with the splendor is coming. Let me say this. I don't think the true church will know the identity of the Antichrist. I believe the true church will be gone, and in the absence of the church, the Antichrist will come to power and be revealed. So if you come to me and say you've figured out who the Antichrist is, just don't tell me. 
Don't tell me. And then I had somebody ask me a question. Do you think the Antichrist is alive today? Probably. I don't know. And I want, I want to qualify that. And by the way, I don't care what time it is. So, in case you're all thinking, he really can't tell time. No, he just doesn't care. There's a difference. Um, I believe that Satan has had an antichrist in every generation. Somebody already picked out. You know why I say that? Because I don't think he never knows when the church is going to go. So he's got to have somebody on standby. So is, is, is there an antichrist somewhere in grooming today, preparation? Probably, probably has always been an antichrist ready. Because what Satan doesn't know is the day the church will leave. And until the church leaves, his antichrist has no power. Here's the closing. Daniel's 70th week tribulation prophecy was given some 500 years before the birth of Jesus. Yet Jesus quotes Daniel's prophecy as a still future event. Are you with me? Beyond 70 AD. It's a future event. The 70th week of Daniel is coming. I'm telling you tonight, the 70th week. If you want to study it, the 70th week of Daniel is coming. The tribulation is coming. The time of God's wrath on the earth, it is coming. Is the question, is it coming in our time? I don't have time tonight to get into the details of Daniel's prophetic timeline. If you want to know what that is, go on our website and go to April 26th during the, the COVID shutdown. I preached a sermon called The Countdown. It goes in great detail about Daniel's 70th week. Go watch that. But here's the thing. Daniel reveals 490 years and right now, I believe the world stands at the end of the 483-year pause. And remember I said that God starts counting when certain, something about Jerusalem starts to count. It is still a mystery. There is still one week of seven. There is still one week of years, seven years remaining in Daniel's prophecy. The time of the Gentiles or the church age is drawing to an end, and it will be followed by literally seven years of hell upon the earth. In Daniel 9.26, here's just a clip from that prophecy. After this period of 62 sets of seven, the anointed one will be killed, appearing to have accomplished nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the city and the temple. Now, li listen carefully. I'm going to give you the short version. The anointed one will be killed. That's Jesus on the cross, appearing to have accomplished nothing. He didn't get the king seat of the throne of David, did he? Appearing to accomplish nothing. And a ruler will arise whose armies will destroy the temple. That happened in 70 AD. That's Titus. And Daniel prophesied that 500 years in advance. So stop counting there. The end will come at a, with the flood and war and miseries or decrees from that time to the very end. Now, here comes the final week. The ruler will make a treaty with the people for a period of one set of seven. I believe that's the Antichrist making a treaty with Israel for one set of seven for seven years. 
But after half the time, after three and a half years, he will put an end to the sacrifices and offerings. Listen, the Jews will never do sacrifices and offering outside of the Jerusalem temple. So that means that if he's going to put an end to it, they're going to have to start the temple worship. They're going to have to start animal worship. And the Antichrist is somehow or another going to have to be involved in that so that he can stop it at the end of three and a half years. And as a climax of all his terrible deeds, he will set up a sacrilegious object that causes desecration in the temple until the fate decreed for this defiler is finally poured out on him. And you know what that is? Jesus comes and he kills him. When I say kills him, he throws him into the lake of burning sulfur. Last scripture, Mark 13. The day is coming. This is 500 years after Daniel's prophecy. The day is coming when you will see the sacrilegious object that causes desecration standing where it should not be. What's Jesus doing? He's quoting Daniel. Reader, pay attention. Then those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person out on the deck of the roof must not go down into the house and pack. You know what he's really saying? Run. Run. There's a tribulation. People are dying everywhere. Those in Judea must flee to the hills. A person on the roof of the house, don't go down to pack. A person out in the field must not return to get his coat. How terrible it will be for pregnant women, for nursing mothers in those days. Pray that your flight will not be in winter. For there will be greater anguish in those days than at any time since God created the world. And it will never be so great again. In fact, unless the Lord shortens that time of calamity, not a single person will survive. But for the sake of his chosen ones, he has shortened those days for the sake of Israel and his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I believe we now live in a wait a minute moment of God called the church age. That's what I call the church age. It's a pause waiting for that last set of seven to come to the earth. The time between the 483 and the final seven, which will be the seven-year tribulation. It's been some 2,000 years now, and the church is still here, still waiting. The apostle Peter said, God is not slow as some men count slowness, but he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. And he also says, a day unto the Lord is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And I'm going to leave you tonight with this thought. Are you ready? It looks like there was about 2,000 years from Adam to Abraham, about 2,000 years from Abraham to Jesus, about 2,000 years from Jesus to today. If the apostle Peter could be taken literally, a day unto the Lord is like 1,000 years, that's what? 6,000 years. If the Lord created the heavens and the earth and everything in six days, and on the seventh he rested, the Jewish people, many of the Orthodox Jewish people, are convinced that there will be a thousand-year Sabbath on this present earth. A thousand years. So after 6,000 years, a day until the Lord is like a thousand years, a thousand years is like a day. At the end of the 6,000, there will be 1,000 rest. Now, we read the Bible, and we know that the thousand years... Sabbath will actually be the kingdom of Christ upon this earth, the millennial reign of Christ on the earth. The question is, when does it start? 
When does it start? Because before it starts, the tribulation will occur. Tonight's first session is just to get us ready for the next nine sessions. And we really haven't even got into Revelation. So I want to give you two invitations. One is you want to know about the Antichrist is coming? Come Sunday. I hope he's not here Sunday, but you can come. We'll talk, we'll talk about him Sunday. Number two, number two, you got to give me three weeks. You got to give me three sessions. Three sessions. Come next Wednesday night. Bring somebody with you. Bring somebody with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to guess. We don't have to live in fear and anxiety when we watch the world turn upside down. But instead, we have this anxious anticipation that our Lord is near. When we see all these things begin to happen, look up for our Redeemer. Our redemption's near. Make your bride ready. Put oil in our lamps, light in our lives. Make us ready. And then put us out into the world to make other people ready while we wait for your coming. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all.